Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a senior lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Dr. Alexander Titov. Alexander is a lecturer in modern European history at Queen's University, Belfast. Alexander focuses in his work on Russian foreign policy, as well as contemporary Russian history, politics, and nationalism. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Alexander. Well, thank you very much for having me. So imperialism as a phenomenon has a long history across the world, but also in the Eurasian region. And I know that in your work, you have investigated imperialism in Northeast Asia. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar, how do we define the Northeast Asian region? And then could you also talk a little bit about your work? What types of imperialism have existed in Northeast Asia in the 19th and 20th century? Yes, this is a very good question. So there are various definitions of uh, Northeast Asia, but uh, for our purposes, and um, I was part of um, HSU-funded uh, research project called uh, Competing Imperialism in Northeast Asia, which was, was a joint uh, project between UK and Japan universities. We defined Northeast Asia as uh, essentially countries such as China, Japan, Korea, and also Russia. I think that's uh, one of the key elements is that traditionally you would say that Northeast Asia only includes the countries with East Asian culture. But uh, our argument in the in the project, which the book should be coming out in uh, September, is that Russia was very much in the late 19th century and early 20th century, very much part of this element, was a very important element in the competing imperialisms. And unlike other European empires, it had a special role or claim in Northeast Asia because it was a contiguous empire. So it was there was no uh, break between the capital, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and its Far Eastern territories, which it uh, acquired from uh, the Qing China in, um, in the 19th century. So that gave it a special status and a special claim to be very much part of this regional network or a competing competing network rather than overseas powers such as British, which were also present at Britain and others, which were overseas empires and whose claim on uh, territories, which they did have, in, in particular in China, were always uh, different from Russia. That's how our argument was. Now, the key point which I was looking at, so we have several colleagues looking at different aspects of it, my point was that uh, we started off as competing imperialisms. So Japanese, Japanese Empire, Qing Empire, which was the um, name of the, for the uh, of China, Chinese state at the time, Russian Empire, as well as um, uh, various overseas empires. But if we look in just those three, China, Russia, and Japan in this period uh, as empires, and they were acquiring imperial territories, right? There was an imperial expansion. However, by the mid 20th century, very much the same borders, give or take, of course, borders changed a bit, but you know, most of them were the same borders, but there were national borders now. So my point was, how did the imperial territories, which was widely acknowledged, so imperial territory, Russian uh, territory, Japan, uh, in Hokkaido, China, in um, in Manchuria, and so forth, uh, how did they manage to turn those imperial territories into national ones? And I look at the three case studies, Hokkaido, for, island of Hokkaido for Japan, 
uh, Russian Far East, which is territories which Russia acquired in two treaties from China in 1858 and 1860, which are now the maritime region where Vladivostok is and the Amur region where Khabarovsk is, main Russian cities in the Far East. And for China itself is Manchuria, right, which is now called Northeast Asia. And I look at how did this process of uh, turning these territories from imperial ones into national ones happened within three cases. And what I found is that actual mechanisms of appropriation of this imperial territory into national one was very, very similar between all three empires. That's why we can talk about the competing imperialism in Northeast Asia. And if I can just briefly outline kind of my main findings here, is that uh, essentially I highlight perhaps four main mechanisms for appropriation of formal imperial territory as a national one between all three states. And that is basically, first of all, is ethnic colonization, right? So ethnic settlement by uh, imperial nations. So in case of Russians, that would be colonization of the, those territories with people from European Russia. Japan, likewise, was a very uh, sustained colonization of Jap by the Japanese after um, 1868, after Meiji Revolution into Hokkaido. Uh, which until then was not fully colonized by the, by, by the Japanese. And also since late 19th century, the Qing government allowed the Chinese, ethnic Chinese were not allowed to settle in Manchuria, which was part of the uh, Qing uh, Manchu homeland. So they were finally allowed to settle in, the, uh, in Manchuria as well. Uh, so all three pursued similar tactics of ethnic colonization. There is also developed a discourse, which I would call a first discovery of superior civilization discourse, arguing that these lands are empty, they tabula rasa, they can be populated by the uh, first discoverer, right? And there is a lot of disagreement who discovered first, for example, Sakhalin Island whether it was Japanese or whether it were Russians and so forth. So there were always these arguments, but basically the arguments are the same between three of them. And if there were people living there, like such as Aino or local uh, tribes in Far Russian Far East or Manchu tribes and others, they were seen as they're not worthy of independent states or that they settled by a superior civilization. That was the case in all three cases is actually justifies the uh, creation of it because it's a superior civilization development and so forth. Uh, the third one is a natural borders one, essentially arguing that uh, this territory naturally belongs to the state. So the Russians have this idea of natural space for Russia, uh, which stretches from the, the Baltic to the Pacific. So essentially reaching the natural limit of its expansion. And that was the new territories were part of it. Japan argued from only from the late 19th century that Hokkaido was um, one of the four main islands, which you know was not the case until uh, until then. So they, they changed the understanding of what Japan was, uh, and of course Manchuria as well. That was not part of the Great Central Great Plain, traditionally speaking. But in the certainly in the 1930s, 1920s, particularly when there was a competition with Japan over this, uh, there was a concerted effort to justify how Manchuria and Northeast Asia is naturally belonged to China on geographical uh, arguments as well. So geographical name about natural borders. And then final one is the so-called mnemonic appropriation. It's through various cultural, historical, and other devices, uh, including, for example, uh, idea of uh, simple renaming territory, right? So until in the late 19th century, uh, Hokkaido was called Azo land, right? So land of the barbarians, right? They renamed it Hokkaido, which is the the seventh um, path, kind of relating it to kind of Japanese historiography. Manchuria is named Northeast, and of course Russian renamed uh, all the 
uh, old names and created new ones to emphasize historical continuity. So, for example, the city of Khabarovsk was named after a Russian explorer, a 17th century Russian explorer, who first tried to settle that land and was kind of repelled by the Qing. But when Russia reacquired the territory, as they argue, they named the city after him, right? So show this continuity. And I would, what's important, so this is a, a detailed look at those three cases and how they develop and so forth. And there's an article coming out about that. But what I always argue is that this essentially is applies not just to Northeast Asia or just Russia. It's actually quite a universal phenomenon. And the means of appropriating a territory which previously did not belong to a nation, uh, into the national so-called nation's geobody, is actually pretty similar. And if you look at uh, arguments and strategies in Europe, uh, in North America, in Australia, and not just Western cultures, but all other cultures as well, including, as I said, China, but India as well, and so forth, uh, it's pretty much similar. You know, So you have a kind of limited n- number of legitimizing factors, ethnic colonization, arguments about uh, historical and antecedent uh, possession and so forth, uh, one people arguments, etc. Uh, et they're all pretty much similar, right? And how the states use them will really depend on kind of historical circumstances and availability of determination and willingness to, to, actually, to, to actually employ them. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating research. And I always feel like imperialism is a phenomenon that deserves so much more attention and really underpins a lot of the roots of phenomena that we still see unfolding today. In that sense, if we fast forward to the present day, you know, we have Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, which took place last year. But one of the arguments that's been put forward is that there are some kind of imperial drivers that might underpin the way in which Putin himself, the Russian regime, has justified or gone about the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Do you see that there are reverberations of imperialism that we're seeing currently in Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yes, this is a very good question. And again, for kind of broad popular kind of understanding or kind of t- terminology, imperialism kind of probably will do. But, you know, as if you look at it more carefully, I would argue that actually, it's in, a, in a sense, it's even worse, because if it was an imperial uh, expansion is taking somebody else's territory, right, it's establishing hierarchy, establishing difference between the colony which is being exploited right and then the the home country and the metropolis which kind of does the exploitation in russian case it's uh, actually what how they, they try to present is very different uh, actually because what they are trying to do is actually appropriate those territories not as a colony but as a part of russia part of russian nation and if you look at the all of the arguments and you know uh, particularly by you know putin himself who has been quite open about those things and you know he's been writing and talking and uh, you know there is a kind of coherent uh, narrative in his announcements on this project you know it's pretty much clear it's not so much he sees it as as an imperial expansion but as essentially as an as a as a restoring traditional form of Russian uh, ownership of those territories which are always been Russian right I, I talked earlier about this there is not that many arguments uh, you can use to justify possession of a territory or appropriation of a territory. And, you know, if you look at Putin's rhetoric, you know, he does use all of them, basically, very much uh, in this justification of this war. So, for example, one of the most commonly used uh, arguments for 
taking over territory or uh, holding on territories and ancestral possession, right? And in the Far Eastern case, for Russia, it wasn't possible because Russia just was a newcomer there, right? So as was Japan in that so to an extent and China, national China rather than Qing Empire in Northeast Asia. But uh, traditionally, ancestral claim is the most important thing. That this is this uh, this land belonged to our forefathers. Therefore, it's ours and so forth, right? And, you know, if you look at his rhetoric, talking about particularly the Donbass, uh, Crimea especially, but also Donbass, you know, talking about this is historical Russian lands. This is a old aged Russian lands, which ended up by mistake, by the Bolsheviks gave them away for their own political reasons. Uh, but they really belong to Russia because they are populated by the Russians, right? So there's another argument about ethnic settlement. If there are no Russians, you know, you can extend what definition of Russian. Again, this is uh, talking about Russian uh, nationalism. There are different versions of it. Uh, how you define Russian nation, you know, you can uh, talk about uh, anybody who speaks Russian language, for example. Putin's claim, for example, about Russian Ukrainians being uh, one people, you know, is pretty much also goes in the same vein. Again, it's not uh, something he invented himself. And I would argue that all those things, they have much more power if they draw on some kind of historical understanding, historical tropes which well uh, spread around the population. And this idea of Russia and Ukraine being very close, you know, there are various arguments going back centuries about uh, Eastern Slavs. So Eastern Slavs are Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, uh, forming essentially one nation. They all kind of have the connotations about trying to kind of appropriate this territory within the broader Russian states, which this that this territory is not imperial connotation, but just taking what is ours, right? And this is uh, the, the phrase, we're just taking what is ours, is actually used by Catherine the Great, uh, the Russian empress, in the end of the 18th century, in 1790s, during partition of Poland, for example, right? So a huge swathe of uh, Polish territory was divided between Prussia, uh, Austro-Hungary, and, uh, and Russia. And she was saying, well, those territories are ours anyway, because they belong to the ancient Rus, to the Kievan Rus, and we are ancestors of this, that, uh, and so forth. So Putin is not inventing anything new here, right? Uh, but again, to emphasize, this is about even if it's expansionist policy you know it's framed in a national language right rather than imperial language but and i think i think another point of course important one is the issue of relations with the west and idea of kind of strategic borders natural borders that we need to control the black the north of black sea to guarantee kind of russian security and i have to say that of course the key question is so they're putting it out there um, putin sincerely believes in himself the question is how far the russian people believe in it right you know and how far even if they believe it how far they believe in those things are strong enough to actually uh, the consequences of a larger war and so forth so that's a different question but basically that's the official narrative and that's how they're trying to to proceed with it Mm-hmm. So do you think that Putin himself really believes that sort of narrative that he's been putting forward? And then I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but to what extent do you feel that those ideas, that way of framing what's happening resonates with, you know, broader sort of Russian population in a domestic context? Yes, well, I think uh, Putin clearly believes in what he says, right? And it's been uh, not um, kind of circumstantial rhetoric, but it has been consistent one for over many years. It changed its emphasis. It changed its 
strength and so forth. But, you know, I think it's even in 2008 when there were famous Bucharest NATO summit, which gave both Georgia and Ukraine promise of future NATO membership. Putin was talking to Bush, a U.S. president at the time, saying, like, do you really under- do you understand that Ukraine is not a real country? It was kind of given by the Bolsheviks to us. You know, you can't, if you start doing this, you know, you know, this will have consequences, etc., etc. I think it's something he believed for a long time. You know, the other thing is, you know, whether he has the confidence, capacity, and determination to actually proceed with those things, right? So, so it's, it's not an accidental thing. It is his long-term thinking about it. But yeah, so he, I think he believes in it, and it's not, uh, you know, you can trace it over many years. It's not um, um, something we just kind of made up on the, on, the, on the spur of the moment because he wants to invade Ukraine. I think he wants to invade Ukraine because he believes in those things, right? The other thing is how far Russian people believe. So it is very difficult question and i think we've seen that in 2014 when the the maidan uh, revolution uh, happened that there were volunteers going from russia to fight in the west so it's not just um, solely kind of uh, russian authorities sending troops which have no choice to go but you know there was kind of a reasonably wide support for that yeah so some kind of uh, russian nationalists did go volunteer and uh, fight in donbass the historically it's not the same as crimea for example right so crimea has an almost universal belief in russia that it is a russian territory wrongly given by khrushchev in 19 19- uh, 54 to Ukraine. Once you move beyond Crimea, it becomes less and less important. So being of the Poles before the war didn't give particularly high priority, uh, in my Russian opinion, public public opinion to Donbass. But of course, these things, uh, once the big war starts, you know, that's things change, right? So it's much more stark choices to face with. So issues, of course, of economic sanctions, but most importantly, issue of mobilization, battlefield losses, and so forth. How far, you know, those territories are actually important, really, they're really important to kind of die over. Essentially, that's what's happening now, yeah. You know, it's all kind of, kind of relates to the question of Russia's domestic politics, Russian domestic political system, and so forth, which been consolidating uh, for quite a long time uh, since Putin came to power. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know it's not fair to ask a historian to make predictions about the future because that's not what you do. But can you comment on how you see the war evolving this year in light of what might happen, you know, what might change or essentially not change within the Russian domestic context? Yes, again, very good question. I would say that there is, I don't think there is a kind of a substantial threat to a domestic regime. So the, given that how things unfolded, and it's not just in Ukraine, but also Russia's relations with the West more broadly, the kind of antagonism between Russia and the West reached such you know, high levels, uh, almost unprecedented. You know, even if you stop the war, sanctions will stay in place. Europe will not buy Russia oil and gas. Uh, America will still kind of sanction Russian banks. Basically, the losses are basically front front loaded already. So Russia will have to can continue kind of its turn pivot to to the east. So uh, trade more with rely more on China, trade more with China, trade more with India, non-European world. The the, the consequences, for example, uh, as I mentioned, that uh, maybe Donbas is not so important, but Crimea certainly is, and you know Ukraine and um, you know lots of people in the West continue that the war will continue until Crimea is re- uh, retaken. All those things saying is basically, you know, if, if it was like, okay, let's just go back to pre 
invasion status. It's not possible, right? So in that sense, I would imagine that given the absence of stronger position at home and also realization that basically you know you stuck with it uh, and even if putin changed i mean putin died for example and uh, everything else what do you do then give up crimea start paying i don't know uh, reparations or give up on nuclear weapons you know break up a russian so forth there's no kind of appealing ways out even if there was no putin right i mean and you know it doesn't seem he's going there anyway so i would imagine that uh, the most likely scenario and of course you know you have lots of different opinions about it and so forth but you know it's, it's all is being decided in the battlefield right so that how how the battlefield will evolve will will be determined will decide the outcome mm-hmm. well thanks so much alexander thank you for tackling these quite challenging questions i've really enjoyed the discussion and i appreciate you sharing your perspective with us on the podcast today well thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.